1 Peter chapter 5, beginning at verse 11, where we left off. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you, all who are in Christ. Now, three Lord's Days evenings ago, we were concluding with verse 11, and I'd like to begin uh, there tonight. In verse 11, we're going to see our first point, which is the dominion of God. Secondly, we'll look at verse 12, the grace of God, and then the final two verses will conclude with final greetings. So the dominion of God, the grace of God, and the final greetings of Peter and his cohorts. Now let's talk about the dominion here. Paul, Peter, uh, much like Paul, uh, as P Paul does in the book of Romans, speaks of the everlasting dominion of the Lord. So does Peter here. To him be dominion forever and ever. Now, First Peter, as we saw since the very start of our study, uh, is, is a letter that deals with the subject of suffering in the church. Uh, th that the church is a suffering people, an alien people that is scattered throughout Babylon, which I take to be the Roman Empire here in this uh, first century letter. Now, these people to whom Peter is writing are not people who have cultural dominion. We have to understand that. This is a different time in history and age. Christianity is not at this point the official religion of the empire, as it would be later in Constantine's time. Um, Christianity is but a subculture, a relatively small, growing, but still small subculture within the empire, often viewed by people outside of that subculture as some kind of subset of Judaism. They do not possess much cultural power or influence. Now, Christians today, we might be feeling this viewpoint increasingly as it seems as though meaningful Christianity uh, is in declension. We might uh, beginning, begin to feel more and more <coughs> um, a sense of uh, empathy here with the, the original audience to Peter's letter here. Though, you know, there's still, we should still at the same time see the great advantage that we still do have. Um, the ability to meet freely, the ability not to suffer persecution, uh, etc. But the church at this point in her history, as Peter is writing to her in the first century, um, is nowhere close, really, to possessing any kind of cultural dominion. But Peter is encouraging this little flock of Christ to stand firm in the grace of God, in verse 12. Now, why does he tell us to stand firm? Well, I think verse 11 helps us understand that. Even though the church does not possess any kind of cultural dominion, they are exhorted to stand firm in the faith of God, and particularly Jesus Christ, who is the king who possesses dominion in this world and the world to come. That is, God's dominion in, is an eternal dominion, a heavenly dominion that comes into this world. The kingdom of God is within the world, and the evidence of the kingdom of God is the existence of the church on earth. But the kingdom of God is not a worldly kingdom. It's not a worldly dominion. Jesus said if it was a worldly dominion, his people would be fighting. But his kingdom is not 
of this world, as he said to Pilate. The kingdom of God is established by God, and therefore it is not, uh, its origin is not a work of men. Liberals want to uh, imply that the church was created by man, and that uh, we, as evangelical Christians, would say, no, the, the church is not fundamentally a work of men, though God use, obviously uses men, it is fundamentally a work of the Spirit of God. The kingdom of God is established by the work of his risen son, Jesus Christ, who now has dominion. All power and authority has been given unto me, Jesus said, prior to the ascension. He goes to the Father after the ascension. He is given the throne of God. He sits, as we say in the Apostles' Creed, at God's right hand. So that Christ then, reigning, ruling in heaven, applies by the Holy Spirit the work that Jesus did while he was on the cross and at his resurrection. Jesus Christ, having accomplished the work of dealing with the world's greatest problems, which are what? Sin, death, the, the opposition of the world, the devil, these, the great enemies of man. Christ has overcome them all by his righteous life, his substitutionary death and resurrection. He ascends to the throne, and now he's exalted with the Father. He and the Father uh, are sitting uh, next to each other. The Father and the Son have sent the Spirit to come into this world. So the reign of the Spirit at first is an inward work on the souls of men. Men who once by nature were dead uh, to the things of God, but now been brought to life by the work of the Spirit, the work of regeneration. So the kingdom of Christ, the dominion of Christ, is a spiritual dominion, first and foremost. The Spirit is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. The Spirit is the one who raises now natural men from deadness, deadness to the things of God. They are dead in their sins and trespasses, Ephesians chapter 2. And he does what? He makes us citizens of the kingdom of Christ by way, way of regeneration, being born again. The Bible says you must be born again if you are to see the kingdom of God. You must be born of a new nature from above by the Spirit of God, not the works of the flesh, not of the will of man, not of heritage, not of blood, not of lineage, but of the Spirit. The work of the kingdom is, is a spiritual work. Men uh, show their allegiance to this kingdom by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. This is how God builds his dominion in the world. He builds his kingdom both intensively and extensively. Intensively, he does so through the work of sanctification. He works within us conforming us to the likeness of Christ. When we are in glory, when the world is finally consummated by the, the glory of Christ in his second coming, the world will be perfectly sanctified. Every citizen in the kingdom under the dominion of God will be perfected. Uh, they, everyone will live as citizens in this kingdom with absolute holiness and righteousness. Uh, we will live in perfect unity, perfect harmony. Uh, there will be no more sorrow, sin, disagreements, uh, disputes. 
there will be absolute perfect sanctification. Nothing in the world can compare to what God does under his dominion. There, there is no amount of external mere human reformation that can bring about what only the Spirit of God can do in the kingdom of God. God, first and foremost, works by his Spirit within us. And he is making you more like Jesus Christ week by week, year by year, helping you to grow in grace. What he's begun already by grace, he will perfect in glory. So that, the, that there is a sense of your, the, future excuse me, the future glorified you is already within you in the sense that it's embryonically there in sanctification. This is why sanctification is serious business. This is why sanctification is so important, is um, that, that sanctification is, is going to blossom into future glorification. And there, there, I, again, it's a bit mysterious, but there seems to be, the New Testament seems to say that there's a correlation between present sanctification and future glorification. Uh, and there's mystery how present sanctification relates to future glory, but there seems to be, the Bible seems to suggest that there's varying degrees of glory. Um, you know, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says there's the glory of the sun, the glory of the moon, etc. And, and so there shall be in, in the future new heavens and new earth. There will be future degrees of honor uh, as, as Christ doles out his rewards. Now, the, the rewards will be, as I've said before, but sur far surpass what anything we've done. But there will be degrees. And so sanctification is important. Um, it, is, it is the beginning works of the future world uh, within us. And that's why we should do all that we can to, to grow in grace and in sanctification. Um, the dominion of, of the kingdom grows slowly over time. Jesus has said it's like a small tree, begins as a small seed, and, it, and it, over time it, it grows. Um, nobody probably goes out every week and checks how big is the tree this week, but you probably have all taken pictures out in your front yard or something, your backyard, and then a decade goes by and you look back at those old pictures and you say, oh wow, you know, not only were the kids smaller, but look at the trees, look at the bushes back then. Uh, they were smaller, too. The kingdom continues to grow. Um, but that, that grow, at times, may seem imperceptible. But it does grow over time, over history, and the Bible promises that it will spread to every cultural group. This is why I, I believe, personally, it's just me talking here, that I still think there's a lot uh, of work to be done still in the world. You know, if, if you were to you know, take Christendom at its broadest width, um, and Europe has probably had the gospel really since the Apostle Paul, most of it, you know, to some degree. Obviously, it's uh, had its waxing and waning and its purity, but, but to some degree. But, but look at Asia comparatively. Asia is, and, and parts of Africa, the lower parts of Africa, um, have not had the number of years that we have. And so I think there's great work still to be done. Um, Seven billion people in, in this world. And I think the Lord um, may. Now, we always have to be ready. We, you know, Jesus has said that even the Son of Man does not know uh, when his day will come. 
Um, and so we should not necessarily speculate overly, I think, on that question. But I, I do think there's some evidence that there's a lot of work still to, to go. God uh, works his grace inwardly, as we said, within believers, but also uh, intensively, but also extensively. Uh, he is building his church. The Bible says that um, every tribe and tongue, and I, I have no reason not to take that literally, that, that, that meaning every dialect, every subculture will be reached by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are told in Daniel chapter 2 that the empires of this world will be made of, of dust and shall crumble into dust. And But Daniel tells us that the kingdom shall at last be filling the earth. So that's the dominion here that I think Peter is speaking of. And how encouraging would that be to a very small uh, subculture within the Roman Empire that's facing opposition and persecution and many trials and tribulations and imprisonments and things, to know that the dominion of God is at work through their suffering, in their suffering, beyond uh, their suffering. So I think it's something encouraging for us as well, even if we are not in the exact same cultural circumstance that they were in that day. There's still lessons, I think, for us to um, also look to the dominion of God and that future glory that is to come. Now, secondly, I want to move to verse 12, to the grace of God that Peter speaks of. He speaks of the dominion of God, and the kingdom of God is a dominion kingdom, but it also is a kingdom of grace. So Peter here, in verse 12, uh, concludes his letter by acknowledging his emuensis, uh, which is basically a scribe, Silvanus, uh, as a faithful brother, he says, uh, for so I regard him. He, that is, it seems that Peter is kind of offering this dictation. Sylvanus seems to be taking it down and writing it in this letter. And he says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this which he has written is the true grace of God. And then he exhorts them, stand firm in it. So I want to emphasize that portion of this verse, the true grace of in which we are commanded to stand firm. What is this true grace? Well, the true grace of God, of course, is opposed to that which is false. The true grace is the real grace of God in Jesus Christ and received by faith alone. The, the, the kingdom of God, the dominion of God, comes by way of grace and only grace. It is the grace that exalts God and not men. It exalts God alone. It saves men alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. This is what true grace is. It leaves no room for human merit. It leaves no room for the sinful flesh to participate in some way to justify itself. True grace is not throwing a life preserver to a drowning man. It is the Almighty God raising the dead. That's grace. That is true grace. There is no human cooperation in this grace that takes those who are dead in sins and in transgressions and does a miraculous work by the Spirit, turning them into a true child of God. This, this is the grace of which Paul wrote about in Philippians when he said that 
he was, of all people, trying to earn his salvation. He was trying to merit his salvation through the works of the law. And yet he said that whatever he attained formally prior to his coming to Jesus Christ, he considered now as scubala, as dung, as dirt, compared to knowing Jesus Christ. The true grace in which we are to stand firm is to stand firm in Jesus Christ, not in Boyd Miller. Standing firm in, not in you, put your name there. Standing firm in the name of Jesus Christ. Christ is the Savior. We are the recipients of his true grace. His grace is free. His, his grace um, is um, free and it is abundant. It, it is not a small trickle. It is not even a creek. It is an overwhelming flood which God freely offers to all men, both the elect and the reprobate alike. The grace of God is freely offered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And tonight I offer you the same free grace tonight here in this little Presbyterian church. Jesus Christ is offering you through his word the grace of himself and anybody who comes and will put their trust in Jesus Christ may be saved from their sins, saved from the agony of having to try and wonder, am I a child of God by working out uh, some kind of justification on your own? Abandon those attempts. Look to Jesus Christ. The grace of God cannot be bought. It cannot be bartered. You cannot trade for it. You cannot try and earn favor with God uh, by making some kind of outward reformation and then you become a candidate for grace? No, you must simply receive the grace of God. You must be as one who extends the empty hand. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. This is true grace. The true grace of God loves to glorify Jesus Christ. The true grace of God will always glorify Jesus Christ and not men. The true grace of God will always see the beauty of Jesus Christ. The beauty of his person, the beauty of his uh, work, the beauty of his ordinances. Jesus Christ becomes supremely lovely to the recipient of grace. You see, to the self-righteous, Jesus is not lovely. Jesus is an enemy. To the self-righteous, Jesus becomes an adversary. This is why the Pharisees and the Sadducees so opposed the Lord Jesus Christ, because they did not know the grace of God. And the grace of God in Jesus Christ revealed their hypocrisy, that they who declared themselves to be righteous in the sight of God and others to be sinners, whom they would look down upon, did not realize that they were going home unjustified. But it is the sinner who recognizes their absolute poverty, and therefore looks to Jesus alone for help, receives the grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ therefore becomes supremely lovely to the believer. Jesus becomes the Alpha and the Omega of every true believer's life, their thoughts, uh, their, their, the way they use their time. Jesus is the beginning, Jesus is the end for them. Jesus is life itself for them. 
This is eternal life, that they may know you, the true and living God, and your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is this grace that Peter's saying, stand in this. Now, Peter knew the dangers of not standing in the grace of Christ, didn't he? You know, Peter almost fell into the Galatian heresy, didn't he? When he began to distance himself from Gentiles who were true recipients of the grace of God when those men sent from James came into the room and, and um, Peter began to stand aloof from people who were not circumcised and began to hold himself aloof in fellowship uh, at, the, at the fellowship dinners. And Paul rebuked him openly because he was not standing firm in the grace of God at that moment in his life. He was succumbing to a Judaizing effect whereby trying to make the Gentiles Jews in order to make them true Christians. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is good news to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. And the good news for the Gentile is that they need only believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, they need not become a Jew in order to become a Christian. You need not become a Jew first and submit, to yourself, submit yourself to the ceremonial laws in order for you to be going to heaven. Peter, I don't know that he forgot this theoretically, but at a practical level, he seemed to be forgetting this. And so Peter, of all men, probably was exhorting himself as he wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, exhorting the church to stand firm in the grace of Jesus Christ. Don't move an inch away from grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Not a centimeter away from this. All glory to God. All glory to Jesus Christ. All praise to Jesus Christ. Jesus alone fulfills the law of God. That which we could not do, weak as the law was, Jesus did for us. God did in sending forth his Son. To be born of a woman made under the law, that he might obey the law, fulfill the law, that he might be that second Adam, to do what the first Adam failed to do, and that he would pre present himself as a righteous, spotless, sinless, substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. And therefore, standing firm in the grace of God means seeing Jesus as everything. He is altogether lovely. The song of songs makes sense in Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ, the song of songs really does not come, I think, to its fulfillment, does it? Jesus said, you search the scriptures, in them you think you have eternal life, John 5. He said, they speak of me. And so even the song of Solomon, ultimately, I think, is a song of the grace of God in Jesus Christ and God's love for us in Christ and our consequent love for him in return. The believer in Jesus Christ knows that there is no other hope for him or her than the smile of Jesus Christ, the grace of Christ, the favor of Christ, to hear Christ in his word, say, go and sin no more. The Christian appreciates that Jesus, the eternal son of God, has left eternity. He has abandoned, for a time, glory 
He has, a, he has left that world of infinite bliss, uninterrupted communion with the Father and the Spirit, and he has descended into this created world that was intent on destroying itself and ruining everyone within it. But Jesus came into this world. He took on real humanity to himself, and he suffered, and he died for us. Now, I want to bring us then finally to the final point, the first being the dominion of God, the second being the grace of Christ, and the exhortation to stand firm in it. And finally, verses 13 and 14, Peter concludes with these final greetings, the final greetings here. He says this, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Now here Peter, I think, emphasizes a third point, and that is the fellowship of the church. Notice that this fellowship is across cultural lines. Uh, it, is, it, is a, it is a fellowship that transcends political lines here. He says that she who is in Babylon, that's probably some kind of reference to Rome. It's in some sort. Uh, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. So does my son Mark. Uh, it is a possible reference to those who are within Rome. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> who uh, greet the recipients of this letter. But what I want us to see most importantly here is we have the exhortation that believers are to preserve this unity of fellowship. Believers are to greet one another with a kiss of love, a holy kiss. Now what kind of kiss would that be, uh, boys and girls? Well, it's probably much like the kiss that you still see in the Middle East where they touch cheeks on either side when they greet uh, each other. Now, that might not be advisable in this culture. Uh, you might want to go with the bro hug. But principally, uh, we, we need to maintain this. The emphasis is upon mutual love and peace within the church. I remember Tom Champness, um, the former pastor at Redeemer uh, Presbyterian Church, where Pastor Weldy Asus now is the minister, and Pastor Champness is uh, retired and uh, is in Memphis and occasionally still fills the pulpit. I think he preaches sitting down uh, these days, but uh, the Lord has uh, preserved his life. But I remember him uh, making this point that um, we were discussing the marks of the church one time at a minister's meeting. And of course, the traditional Reformed view of the uh, marks of the church is the right preaching of the word, administration of the sacraments and discipline. And Tom Chamness said, you know, he raised the question, you know, do you think those are the only marks of the church? He asked us younger ministers. And, and uh, he answered his own question, and he said, if I were to have a fourth mark of the church, he said, I think it, it should be love. Um, and indeed, the, there is some scriptural support, I think, for that. Jesus has told us um, that love within the church is a mark that he said even the world would recognize as setting the church apart from the world. You see, the world is hateful. The world is hating. The, busy, the world is busy with envy, malice. Um, the world is uh, busy with revenge, with bitterness, with acrimony. Um, you, you know, 
Let's look at our own Congress. <laughs> you know, they, it was on full display, you know, the acrimony, the bitterness. Congressmen having to hold back other congressmen, you know, uh, in, in the midst of, of the debates on the floor. And, um, the, and here, Peter is exhorting us to uh, maintain uh, the, the, the unity of the church, greet one another with a kiss of love. He says, peace be to you all who are in Christ. Let there be peace, let there be unity, let there be love within the church. Now, theologically, as I have mentioned in sermons past, one of the reasons for this is Edward says, again, just like our sanctification uh, has a connection to our future glorification, our unity in this world has a connection to the perfect unity that will be experienced in the new heavens and the new earth. Edwards has said that heaven is a world of consummate love. That is, a world without sin will also be, Edwards argued, a world with perfect love. And Edwards um, spoke of this theme, he even wrote a book entitled uh, Charity and Its Fruits. Today it would probably be entitled Love and Its Fruits. It's based on 1 Corinthians 13. And it, it, it's interesting, you know, Edwards today probably has this popular perception outside of our circles that he's just this hellfire brimstone preacher because of the, sin, the sermon Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But uh, somebody did a word study on Edwards and found that uh, the, the word sweetness and love, actually, uh, when you take out all the, you know, uh, the thes and uh, a's and ands, um, the words sweetness and love actually are predominant in Edwards' vocabulary, in, in, the, in his writings here. And so Edwards actually uh, often far spoke more often about these themes uh, than he did uh, about the terrors of, of the final judgment and of hell. Um, we are told in Ephesians 4 to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. And that is because we are aiming, um, you, you know, at, at, with an eye to the world that is to come. <laughs> I, had, I had a Christian one time tell me uh, some time ago, you know, we're not going to be friends. <laughs> and uh, and I, I wanted to say to them, are, are, what, are you going to avoid me in heaven? I mean, what do you, what do you mean? Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a bit oxymoronic to to say such a thing, um, and it's a little short-sighted. But um, we are to strive for it. Now, obviously, in a fallen world, it, it is not going to be um, perfected, obviously, in this life, but we are to be striving for it. Um, and it, it's very interesting, too, speaking of Jonathan Edwards, um, I finished Marsden's book uh, on Edwards again, and um, one of the interesting things was how uh, what a beautiful sermon Edwards had a departing sermon uh, from Northampton. Uh, this was a congregation that voted to turn him out. And, uh, but yet the, the final sermon, well, it was the final, it was supposed to be his official final sermon. What ended up happening was they couldn't get another minister. They thought they'd get another. And nobody wanted, I guess, to, to take the job. <laughs> it was like, if they're going to fire Edwards, you know, who am I? But uh, anyway, so they ended up having to bring Edwards back again and again and again to fill the pulpit, even after he had been dismissed. But uh, his official final sermon was a, was a thing of beauty, uh, urging Christians to uh, love and, and charity uh, with each other. Well, let's, uh, let's pray together. Lord, we, we thank you for 
Jesus Christ, his work. We thank you for his dominion, his grace, and his love for us that binds us to one another. Bless us now, Lord, we pray. We ask that we might close out this uh, Lord's Day with joy and fellowship in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Our final song is going to be uh, 544. 544. Now let's stand together. Lead on, O King Eternal. shall be our home through days of 